We're in Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 17. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may, at may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. For I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. All right, you got your Bible open to Romans chapter 1. <clears throat> Going to continue our study of the book of uh, Romans. And um, one thing to keep in mind about biblical literature, books like Romans, other Greek literature, is there's an emphasis on what is at the beginning and what is at the end. Right now, we're at, the, we're at the beginning of the book of Romans. And so there's a real emphasis in terms of what the, the author is thinking because at the beginning, he sort of tells us why he is writing and, and why he is important and what's motivating him. And that's what we're going to talk a lot about today is, is Paul's motivations and, and looking those from, at those from a biblical perspective and imagining and understanding that we also ought to be motivated by the same things. And so I'm going to give you the answer at the beginning. Paul is motivated by power. He is moved by power, and because he is motivated and moved by power, he be behaves in particular ways, and we're going to look at the ways that he is behaving. So just look at verse 8 with me, just real quick. Paul says this, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So the faith of the Roman believers was well known. And now he wants them and us and himself to realize and remind ourselves why. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of Son, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. So he's saying something powerful has happened in the lives of the Roman believers. And one of the reasons, among others, one of the reasons is he has been praying for them. And so we're going to look at two different avenues in the believer's life that ought to be something we're motivated to do. And the question I want to ask is, why should we be motivated to do them? So the first one is we should be praying to God for help. Why should we be motivated to pray for God for help? Because that's what good Christians do. So just suck it up, right? No, in fact, that's not Paul's argument at all. We are moved by power to pray to God for help. That's what Paul is saying is he prays to God for help because he is motivated by things that actually do things. A, a psychologist did sort of an informal study as he was interviewing and looking at his uh, clients that he worked with. He was trying to answer this question. Why are people generally sort of enamored with or interested in or wondering about, spend time talking about famous people? 
Why do we care about famous people? There are entire websites, magazines devoted to wanting to know about famous people. If you go to a restaurant and there is a famous person at the restaurant, an athlete, a performer, a politician, there's a famous person in the restaurant, what are you going to do after your meal? You're going to call up your buddy. You're going to post it on Facebook. I was just at Red Robin. You won't believe it. You won't believe who I saw. And because we want people to know, we saw somebody famous. A thousand years ago, when my wife and I were first married, she was very young. I was very old at the time. Um, we went to a restaurant, Washington Square Mall up in Portland. Maybe you've been there. TGI Fridays. I don't know if this restaurant exists. The one at Washington Square no longer exists, but back then it did. And we pulled in, and somebody had parked their Mercedes uh, station wagon, okay, on four spots. And I remember pulling in and going, what kind of arrogant, pompous person would park their Mercedes on four spots? Very typical of a Mercedes owner is what's going through my mind. I'm not judging you if you own a Mercedes, but typical. <laughs> so we walk in, and sitting on the other side of TGI Friday's Rashid Wallace. Now, as in the first service, if you haven't been following the Blazers for 20 years, you don't know who Rashid is, but hopefully you know who Sheed was. He's one, one of the great players at the time of the Blazers. We walked and we spent the whole meal going, what's he eating? We're so excited. And then we left. We called her. We saw Sheed. He was at TGI Fridays. Can you believe we saw that? Why, why do we care? He was eating a burger or whatever like we were. Why do we give a rip when we see someone famous? And, and so what the psychologist figured out is we are motivated to be connected with things that matter. We want somehow our life to have significance, and that's a good thing. That's, that's the way we were created. And there is some kind of sense that when we see something, somebody famous and our lives can brush up against them, there's a sense of, oh, I was close to somebody, and, and they matter. And why do they matter? Because they are well-known for what they do and what they do really well. So here's a person that has experienced some success that the world recognizes. And, and, and whatever, there's something hardwired into us that wants to brush up next to that and, and, and say, well, my life matters because it, it operated in the same room as their life, at least for 10 minutes while we were eating a burger. And, and this is what happened. And we're moved by power. We're moved by that influence. And one of the things we admire about people that are well-known, especially athletes and business people, is we look at somebody who can look at what needs to be done, has the skill set, the resources, the competencies, the confidence to get the thing done, and to get it done so well that the world recognizes they're awesome. And there's something in us that says, man, I wish I was like that. I wish when I went to do a thing, it went really well, and, and it was successful, and, and when I walked, on, walked in, the crowd cheered. And we, and we love that idea. I'm not saying if it's right or wrong, it's just what is. And the reason we're moved by is we're moved by power, that which influences. We're motivated. If, if something works, let's, let's do it. And Paul is motivated by exactly the same things here in this passage. He is moved by power because he knows what works. And look what he is saying is working. As God is my witness, I mention you always in my prayers. We have to understand he's connecting his prayers with what appears to be a, a well-known, effective disciple-making ministry in Rome. Believers and their faith known throughout the world. How much time has Paul spent in Rome so far? None. And he is saying one of the effective avenues for the ministry of the gospel in Rome are my prayers having never been there. 
And he is moved by that which is influential. He is motivated by that which has power. And what he is telling us here is the prayer to God for help has power and influence. He's not making an argument from piety. He's not making an argument saying good religious people pray. He's not saying anything like that. He's saying the reason I pray is it does a thing. And it does it effectively. In fact, his argument is it does it more effectively than most things. There was a movie came out. It's called Apollo 13. I think it was based on real life events. It was the, 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 it's a true story based on a Tom Hanks trip to the moon. If I remember, uh, I wasn't around for Apollo 13, but I was around for the movie. So it's basically the same. So what happens in Apollo 13? They're going to go to the moon and there's a malfunction on the command module. And as a result, they're not going to be able to go to the moon. In fact, the question is whether or not this uh, crew of three astronauts is even going to get home safely. They all move into the lunar lander because the command module has been harmed. And what they need to do is they need to have enough oxygen to be able to get a plan together to try to be able to get back home. Maybe you remember the scene. They all move into the lunar lander. And because the lunar lander is only designed for two astronauts, and now there are three astronauts, the carbon dioxide levels are getting up to an unhealthy level in the lunar lander. And they say, we need to change out the scrubbers that take out the carbon dioxide, right? No big deal. The command module has a bunch of CO2 scrubbers, right? What's the problem? They're the wrong shape. The the filters in the command module are square, whereas the housing in the lunar lander is round. Same material, same purpose, same engineering. The difference is only the shape. Those filters won't fit in that housing. So what they have to do is they have to, using just the stuff on their spacecraft, duct tape, of course, I mean, why not? Uh, folder covers, other things, they, are, they create an adapter so these square filters can function attached to this round housing. And we're watching, when you watch this movie, if you haven't seen it, we love this scene because it's, it's a bunch of people, they're given a problem and using creative thinking and, and outside the box thinking and looking through contingency plans and solutions, they're able to come up with a plan and the plan works. And we love it. They did a thing and the thing worked and, and the astronauts got home and everybody's happy. Yay, Apollo 13. Why do we love this? Because they used their influence and it worked. Why do we not like prayer? Because we don't think it works. If we thought it worked, we wouldn't be able to stop you from praying because we, by our very nature, do the things, are motivated by the things, are drawn to the things that get stuff done. We all do what works. We're motivated by effectiveness. We're motivated by power. And Paul here in, in this passage is making this simple argument. I have prayed for you in Rome and it has been effective and your faith is known around the world. It's not the only thing that was encouraging their faith, but Paul is making an argument. It's one of the primary things that God has been at work in their lives because people have been praying for them, moved by power to pray for God's help. Look at verses 10 and 11. Always in my prayers, he was asking that somehow by God's will, I may be able to come and see you, he is saying. I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. So his prayer is that their faith would be encouraged. And his prayer is that he would be able to come visit them in Rome. 
I don't know where Paul was necessarily when he was uh, putting this together, but he wasn't in Rome, and so he needed to travel there. So if you were Paul and you wanted to go to Rome, what would you do? You would pick up the phone. Paul had a contact list that any fundraiser would envy. This guy knows Peter. This guy knows James, lesser and greater. This guy knows Andrew. This guy knows Philip. He doesn't know Stephen. I mean, he was there when he died. But this guy had contacts. This guy knew everybody. He could make 10 phone calls, send out a text blast, and he'd have his entire trip paid for. I know he didn't have a phone. You're looking at me like, they didn't have phones back there. He had a flip phone. We all know that. Some of you aren't laughing. It's because you have a flip phone. What's wrong with a flip phone? Nothing wrong with it. It's fine. Why didn't he do this? He could have had the whole trip paid for. He could have called up his other buddy and said, you know what? I know that you have friends in Rome who have connections in the empire, in, in the emperor's uh, household. I need a couple of meetings with some important senators. I need a couple of meetings with some high-ranking officials. Because if I'm going to do this trip, I need to have some traction. I need to swing for the fences. I need to be able to put together a report on this ministry that shows it mattered. That I showed up in Rome and I hung out with the important people and told the important, and, and this matters. Do you, don't you think Paul could do this? Paul could be traveling first class, staying in first class accommodations, spending all of his time hanging out with just the big mucky mucks, telling them whatever he wanted to tell them. But he doesn't do any of this. What does he do? He says, I am going to pray that I come to you. It must be because he's lazy. Lazy people are always praying because he don't want to just get anything done. No, Paul is doing what he believes is actually the most effective thing, is to seek the Lord and seek where he might lead to take Paul to Rome. In fact, God does provide for an all-expense-paid trip to Rome on the government's dime. As a prisoner... Probably not the way you and I would want to travel, but nonetheless, God's will was done, was it not? This is the way we think. We think prayer is put together a good plan, use all, your, all, the, all of your thinking, your solutions, your plan, and then prayer is the fairy dust that makes my plan God's plan. And Paul doesn't approach it that way at all, and it drives us bonkers, because we are the kind of people who say, well, a thing is done when it's done. There's got to be a goal, a checklist, a punch list, boom, 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 it's done, something happened, send out the prayer letter. And Paul has the, the gall to, to just pray. And why does he do that? It's not because he's not motivated. In fact, it's because he's motivated that he prays, because his view is, if I'm going to go to Rome, it's because God's going to take me, so I will seek the Lord for his uh, power to do that. What's his goal in Rome? Here's what he says, verse 13. I'm going to start in verse 12. His goal is that they may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers. I've often intended to come because I want to reap a harvest among you as well as the Gentiles, because he's obligated to both the Greeks and the barbarians, the Greeks, the non-Greeks, as well as uh, Jews and Gentiles alike. So here's what his prayer is. He wants to go and have ministry in Rome, and there's two kinds of ministry. He wants to encourage the Roman believers in their faith. He wants 
his faith encouraged by the Roman believers, and he wants the gospel proclaimed to people in Rome who don't know Jesus. This is what his ministry is going to be. The only way any of this happens is if God answers prayer. First thing he's going to do, he wants to encourage their faith and have his faith encouraged. Why does he want to do this? He's an apostle. Shouldn't his faith be kind of dialed in at this point? I mean, shouldn't he be kind of A-plus, all-star at this point? And his answer is no. Here's here's the, the reality with Christians. We believe Christ died on the cross for our sin. We believe he rose from the dead to give us new life. We believe the Holy Spirit is in us to make us more and more like Jesus. And each one of this of us is living this reality in different places. We have different families. We have different jobs. We have different friends. We have different family backgrounds. We have different uh, racial backgrounds. We have different economic backgrounds. And what Paul says, what we can do is we can all come together living our faith in unique circumstances and we can share with each other what's happening. And your experience in your life is going to benefit me, my experience in my life. So we can come together and say, what's the Lord doing in your life where you're living? And we can hear what you have to say and say, oh man, that's really helpful. I had no idea people would uh, think that or do that or would act like that. I, I didn't know that God could do a thing in, in that manner. And so believers come together, they share with one another, here's what God is doing in my life and in the situations I find myself in, what's he doing in your life? So then modern churches, we change it all up. Here's what we do. Let, I've got a great idea. Why don't we all get together on Sunday and act like everything's cool? Let's, let's all show up and just be like, no, how's everything? Oh, too blessed to be stressed, hashtag. <laughs> what? And, 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 and then you feel that pressure. You're like, oh, wait, oh, that's right. We're too blessed to be stressed. Uh, I'm feeling stressed, but I didn't realize we were playing games. So, okay, what's the, I, I grew up in church. I can play this game. I do this all day long. I can, I can put on the happy face. Yeah, everything's cool. Oh, man, yeah. Too stressed to be blessed. Oh, I mean, see, it doesn't work. It doesn't work if the job is to come to church and pretend like everything's fine. No mutual benefit in the Lord happens when there's no need to be benefited. The way the community of believers is designed to function is a bunch of people get into a room and figure out how to encourage and strengthen one another. But if everybody's already awesome sauce, there's no need for it. If you're already dialed in, I got an idea for you and you're going to hate this, stay home. The worst thing you can do if your Christian life is doing great is show up to church. I know these people. They will drag you down. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. People are people, though. If you want to be challenged in your Christian life, you interact with people, and the challenge is good because we learn where we're, where we're struggling, and, oh, you've, you've been through this before, and, and I can hear from you how, that, how I can do something different in my life and seek the Lord in a different way, and we come together in a great way that way. It's a mutual benefit, but we do that all the way with if we have to come in and play a game and pretend like everything's okay. So he was looking for mutual benefit in his ministry, a shared background of faith in diverse contexts that come together in relationship and share with each other how uh, God is working. And he understood that the only way for this ministry to have an effect is to be praying for one another, is to be encouraging one another in prayer for one another. And that's what he's saying. He prayed for the Roman believers on a routine and regular basis. Day in and day out, he encouraged them. Quick question for you before we move on to the second part of the message. Think about the growth you've experienced in your spiritual life. 
Uh, whatever it might be. Maybe uh, in your life you know of things in your past that you used to do and you're thankful that God has, has moved in your life that you no longer do those things. Or maybe you're thankful God has moved in your life and there are some areas of obedience that you're now doing and you're, and you're grateful that God's moved in, in particular ways to read his word and pray or be devoted in your family, work hard at work, whatever it might be. It may, I don't know what it might be, but, but God has worked in your life. You, you can look over the course of your last 10 years and you say, you know what, I've, I've really seen the Lord move. And you're encouraged by that and you should be encouraged by, by that. And the question I'd ask you this is, is why did that occur? Is it because you were a good Christian? Is it because you attended church? Is it because you're just really disciplined? All of these things may contribute. But let me tell you what I believe Paul is saying. The number one reason we see growth in the Lord in our life is because someone is praying for us. Somebody out there is praying that God might help you. It might be your parent. It might be your grandmother. Odds are for 90% of us in this room, the reason we even know the Lord today is there's some lady named Ethel and she at some point put you on a prayer card, and she's been praying for you every Tuesday since 1970. And you say, well, what difference does that make? I bet you it made all the difference. What Paul is saying here is, if we're going to grow in the Lord, the single most important avenue, the most powerful avenue to grow in the Lord is to be seeking Him in prayer for our own hearts and for those around us. If you want to be a disciple maker, someone who influences others for the Lord, the greatest thing you can do is buy a stack of index cards and start writing people's names on it. And say, you know what? I want this person to know Jesus better. Write their name on it and write how they should know the Lord better. Start with your spouse. Grab an index card. Write their name on it. Write down the way you wish they didn't sin anymore. Make sure they never find that card. But you think I'm kidding. Anybody have spouses who sin? God, notice how quiet it got right up in there. But, but you don't want to say anything because it's just people are people and you're cool. You love them. You accept them. But, you know, it'd be really nice if the Lord could have victory in their life. It would be really nice if the Lord could have victory in your life. Why not start praying that God would give your spouse victory over that area that you know that they shouldn't have victory over? Well, no, it'd be better just to bring it up every day. Well, maybe, maybe the Lord is calling you to exhort. I'm not saying no. But prayer is the single most effective way for you to be a disciple maker in the lives of someone else. If you are already meeting with people at your place of work, in your church, or in your community, in your neighborhood, or with friends of yours, you're getting together for prayer, you're getting for, together for Bible study, you're getting together to, to talk about whatever you want to talk about, and you want to encourage each other in the Lord, you have got to be praying for each other when you're not together. Yes, read a book. Yes, read through the Bible. Yes, talk about your struggles. But the, the primary way you as a small group are going to influence each other for the Lord is to be on a regular routine basis praying. We're not praying to be righteous. We're not praying to be religious. We're not praying to be pious. We're not praying because we're supposed to. Why does Paul pray? Because it does a thing, and it's the most effective way to do a thing spiritually in the lives of others. Moved by the power of God to pray to God for his help in our own heart and in the lives of others. Realize this is the way God's power is unleashed into the lives of the people around us is day in, day out, prayer for them. Say, so, well, when do I know if it'll work? 
tell you what, try it for 40 years and check in. And then if it's not working, I'll give you a pass on it. But, it's, I'm gonna, but you got you to swing for the fences for 40 years, all right? Moved by God's power to pray for God's help. All right, let's look at the, next, uh, the other thing that moved uh, Paul for ministry. Moved by God's power to proclaim God's message. Verse 15 of Romans 1. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Why is Paul eager to preach the gospel to them in Rome? Because he is moved by God's power. He is moved by power to proclaim God's message. There's a really old movie that came out a long time ago. I haven't seen it. I think it was called Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Who's seen this movie? Right? Yep. That's what I figure. Jimmy Stewart. Am I right? All right. I know that part. I haven't seen the film, but I read about it on Google. So it's like seeing it. So what happens is a, a congressman dies or something or other gets fired or something, and Mr. Smith is appointed to that person's seat. Now, Mr. Smith is the country bumpkin, naive, doesn't know anything. He's going to Washington, and he's going to now be uh, locking horns with the sophisticated Washington powerful elite. And the hook here is, uh, how is Mr. Smith going to do in Washington facing the great uh, machine of sophisticated urban power when he's just this naive, ill-informed, uninformed country bumpkin. And so we read Romans 15, and Paul says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you in Rome. We might think what Paul is saying is, I want to see how the country bumpkin gospel does in the powerful city of Rome. And if we're reading it that way, we're reading it backwards from how he's reading it, how he's writing it. What he's actually doing is flipping the story. He is so confident in the power of the gospel. He's saying, I'm curious how the country bumpkin Rome will do when faced with the power of the gospel. The naive, uninformed, don't know what is coming to them are the uh, Roman power structure. It's the gospel that is the true power that Paul believed in. He wasn't coming to Rome to see if the gospel worked there. Just let's give it a shot, see what happens. He's going to Rome because the gospel works, and, he, and he's wondering if the Romans are ready for it. Look what he says in verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also for the Greek. What is the power of God to save people? It is the gospel. In Rome as well as Bly, Oregon. It doesn't matter. The gospel is the power of God. The Romans aren't going to be able to stop the gospel any more than anybody else. Paul was convinced the gospel is the power of God, and he was motivated and moved by the power of God. Remember, Paul is a Jew, and he was a Pharisee, and he is a believer. So he understood his Old Testament. He understood how salvation and redemption was taught in the Old Testament. And one of the primary places we see the, the story of redemption in the Old Testament is in Exodus. The people enslaved to Egypt are delivered out of Egypt by the blood of the Lamb. And then they leave Egypt through the Red Sea. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the people of Israel going through the Red Sea is like baptism. They were baptized into Moses. So they were saved from slavery in Egypt, baptized into Moses, and anticipated going to the promised land. 
So Paul understands the power of redemption is the power of the Red Sea being split in two. His gospel is not some namby-pamby, gee, I hope it works kind of gospel. His gospel is a gospel that splits seas apart and people walk through. Look at Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. A little song of victory related to the redemption of people of Israel. I will sing to the Lord. He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider is thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them and then went down to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And Paul sees this same power in the gospel. Jesus, who died on the cross and rose again, completely defeated the enemies of sin and death. He's not wondering if the gospel is going to work in Rome. He's not wondering if it will get any traction. His question is whether or not the Romans can handle it. Because the power of God for salvation is the gospel. Look at the end of Romans 1.17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What does he mean by this? It's simply this. We receive salvation from God through faith. Jesus died on the cross. And in order for us to participate in the life of God, we have to have God's righteousness. So the Bible says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He who knew no sin became sin that we might have, what is it? The righteousness of God. So this is this great exchange. We give Christ our sin and judgment. He takes on himself the punishment we ought to have deserved. We receive the righteousness of Christ. He dies on the cross. Three days later, he raises from the dead. So in Christ, we have both righteousness and life in him forever. We can have a relationship with God forever because we've been made righteous in Christ and we've been made alive in Christ. How does that occur? When we trust him, when we have faith in him, when we rely on Christ, it's a matter of belief. And what he is saying here is the righteous live by faith. To live the Christian life is a life of faith. It's a life of working out our faith on a day-in and day-out basis. Some Christians believe you get saved by faith and you live saved by works. So you get saved, you trust Jesus, you spend the rest of your Christian life working your, your hiney off to try and impress God. That's not what Paul is saying here. He says we get saved by faith and the righteous, what do they do? Live by faith. I trust today I'm righteous, not because I'm a good Christian, but because Jesus made me righteous. This verse is saying it basically two ways. The righteous shall live by faith. It's also saying it this way. The righteous by faith shall live. Everything is bound up in who do we trust to save us? And the power of the gospel is we trust Jesus to save us. And he is the one who makes us righteous and keeps us righteous. And the gospel grants us eternal life. And Paul is saying this is power. The power of God to do all of this is in the message of the gospel by Jesus Christ. And Paul had no shame 
because he saw the power of God at the Red Sea, and he sees the power of God to change lives in the gospel. Moved by God's power to pray for God's help, and moved by God's power to proclaim God's message. Just a couple of quick things to think about. We tell people about things that work. That's what we do. So if you figured out this summer how to grow big tomatoes, maybe you did. Maybe you've got the biggest tomatoes you've ever grown. You've never had a tomato plant with so many tomatoes. Probably the first thing you did was go over to your neighbor and say, you won't believe the tomatoes I'm growing. And your neighbor's going, what? You just got to tell them, good news, I'm growing big tomatoes. Maybe you spilled something on your carpet. Favorite glass of wine ended up in the carpet somehow. And you figured out how to get the stain out of your carpet. And you went over here, you're never going to believe this. I figured out how to get wine out of my carpet. Can you believe it? Normally, it would just, I'd have to buy a rug and cover it. But I bought this thing and it got it all out. It's unbelievable. And so we tell the neighbor, you won't believe this. We figured out how to fix something. We don't have to call a plumber. You go, neighbor, I know how to work a plunger. I no longer have to call Roto-Rooter. We're we're thrilled because we figured out something that works. When you you figure out something that works, and you also know this too, when when you're talking with your buddy, you say, I guess my my car's making a racket. I know what you got to do. You ever have somebody tell you that? I know what you got to do. When your buddy says, I know what you got to do, what do you know for sure? He has no idea what he's talking about. But he is going to tell you he knows what, he, what to do as though his, he, he's never been more, more confident of anything in his life. So this is what we do. We tell people about things that get the job done. And what Paul is saying about the gospel is it gets the job done better than anything that's ever existed. And we need that reality to settle into our hearts so that we can tell people about the gospel, not because we need them to be religious, not because we're supposed to, but because it does a thing. We've seen the power of the gospel in our life, and somebody says, well, I don't know what to do here. He said, well, for me, it was Christ. I don't know if I'd still be married if it wasn't for Jesus. I don't know if I'd still be working if it wasn't for Christ. I don't know if I'd be over my addiction if it wasn't for Christ. I don't know what it might be, but we're going to tell people what works. And if you're having a hard time seeing whether or not Jesus works in your life, it's going to be really hard to tell other people about him. But if we see him changing our lives through prayer, through the ministry of the word, we can learn to be excited to tell him, tell others about what works, the work of the Lord in our life. Second question I'm just going to bother you with. That's my job is to bother you. What is the role of prayer in your life? And I, you don't have to tell me. I just want you to think about it. And I'm not being judgy much. But just think about what is the role of prayer. A lot of times we think of prayer is something we do for meals, something to do when, when we get into a really tight spot. Or maybe we've even been taught, you know, you should have a habit of prayer. So we get up in the morning and we read a devotional, we read a scripture, and then we do what we call prayer time, also nap time, right? We start praying and it's hard to have a conversation and the person isn't talking back. Isn't it kind of strange sometimes? And we're trying to figure out, well, what is the role of prayer in my life? I think it's supposed to be done, but I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to do this. And what Paul is saying is, Prayer is not a thing to be done. It is a thing that does things. So think about it this way. Who in my life do I want to know Jesus better? Who in your life do you say, you know what? It would be so great if this person knew Jesus better or knew Jesus at all. And make it your job to just ask God to make that happen in whatever way you might see fit. Lord, I pray that you would bring somebody into life that they would share the gospel with them. God, I pray that they would learn to say no to this habit that's keeping them away from you. And just seek to disciple them 
through prayer and see how God might work. We pray not because we're supposed to. We pray because it's the most effective way to minister to others. Our hope is that a hundred years from now, you and I are Ethel, that person who prayed for somebody. And they can't figure out why they know the Lord, and they didn't realize that at some point their name ended up on our prayer card. And we've been praying for them every Tuesday at 10 o'clock since then. Finally, this. Apollo 13, what's the famous line in that movie? Do you remember that line? Houston, we have a problem. Well, the problem is true. It's in our culture and it's in our own hearts. And the solution is the gospel. The solution is not the politics. The solution is not people finally realizing my opinions are right or yours. The solution for my heart, for your heart, and for the heart of the people in our culture is the hope of the gospel. Yes, we should help people. Yes, we should be a part of restoring Phoenix and talent. Yes, we should encourage and be with people. But at the end of the day, the gospel is the hope of God to take people from a life that is destined for separation from God and give them hope in life for God, with God forever. We do have a problem, and the gospel is the power of God to save.